You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Hey, we had a uh, really great weekend for uh, helping our marriages, and so many of you came to the marriage conference Friday night and Saturday, and I know you got a lot out of it. And uh, to the team, Rich and Aaron, and the team that was a part of it, thank you so much for putting that together. It was a tremendous time, and I know every marriage that was there benefited deeply from it. The church really is a relational warehouse, and we learn to do relationships. We learn how to help people attach and connect. So many of us have grown up in families where we didn't really learn how to connect or how to attach. And uh, the church certainly is helping people do that. And um, we've got a lot to offer. So anyway, it was a great time. It was a great time. Well, hey, to get started this morning, a couple questions. Have you ever been in a competition where before the game even got underway, you were at a clear disadvantage? I mean, why even try, right? If you know you're going to lose. Or have you ever been given a rule that you knew you could not keep and you see the rule giver as unfair or unloving or doesn't really understand? As followers of Jesus, we might subtly feel that way, though I don't think we ever talk about it. As followers of Jesus, we know that our core calling is to become like Him. Yet, is that fair? I mean, He is God. How can we think as He thought, speak as He spoke, or do what He did? When He has such a remarkable advantage. Surely God was kidding, right? Surely he was kidding. It feels like we are in undertow. We are asked to swim in one direction, but are being pulled in another by forces stronger than us. Well, this morning we are going to open the door on this undertow that all of us feel. Our journey through Luke's story lands us at his baptism. And though told in only a few verses, it reveals a flood of insights about how Jesus could accomplish all that He did. Reflecting this morning on these insights may just ignite a fire in your own vision of what God can do through you. This morning, if you feel you have spiritually plateaued, or if you believe you have reached the limit of what God can do through you, or if you are disheartened by sins that keep dragging you down, my prayer this morning is that the heavy lid of discouragement will be lifted and you will be able to fly again. Will you please stand? And if you want to follow along in the, with the Pew Bible in front of you or a device, or if you brought your Bible, we're going to look quite a bit this morning, but we're going to start here, page 859. I'm going to read 
Luke 3, 21 through verse 23. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the Son, as was supposed, of Joseph. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, we come before You as the church of Jesus, family of Jesus, where, as we said, relationships can be rebirthed and we can learn the power of love for You and the love for one another. And I pray that, Father, You would take us this morning deeper into an understanding of who Jesus is, of who the Holy Spirit is, And I pray that that would lift the lid of discouragement. It would lift the lid that we arbitrarily place on ourselves of what You can do in and through us. I pray, Father, that You would relight the fires of old dreams and old passions that maybe have dimmed with time. We pray this through Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. Jesus' baptism is very significant. And there are three indicators of that. One, all four Gospel writers include it. Two, we only have three recorded times that God spoke audibly to Jesus. This is one of them. And three, we see vividly in one scene the intersection of all Three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism was a very important moment. This was the beginning of His public ministry. But it also raises lots of questions. For example, why did Jesus get baptized? Secondly, what is the significance of the Father speaking to Jesus? Third, Why is Jesus' ancestry important? We didn't read all that, but it's there. Fourth, why did the Spirit come on Jesus? And then finally, what difference does any of that make to me? Okay? So there's your outline. Let's start with the first question. Why did Jesus get baptized? Isn't Jesus the last person to get baptized? Who needed baptism? Feels like it feels like Mother Teresa coming to me and asking me to baptize her. No, you baptize me. John the Baptist felt that way. He tried to deter Jesus from being baptized, saying, rather, I need to be baptized by you. Now remember how Nick told us that John's preaching called out the spiritual sin and the spiritual straying of Israel. His baptism pointed them back towards God. And his audience, of course, was Jewish, so devotion to God meant returning to and keeping the law of Moses. From that law, Jesus had never deviated. 
So why should he get baptized? When Matthew records the same event, he gives us a little bit more of the dialogue. He included Jesus' answer to John's protest. And Jesus said, I'm getting baptized, John, because it's the right thing to do and it fulfills all righteousness. Now, I'm not sure totally what that means. My sense is that it indicated Jesus' support for John's ministry and it identified Himself with His fellow Jews. Jesus, too, was a man born under the Mosaic Law. And even though He had not broken the law, in baptism, He identified with the humanity, the humanness of those who did. One last possible reason that Jesus was baptized is that in His baptism, which was by immersion, meaning when John baptized Him in the Jordan River, He went fully under the water. Even in baptism, we see that Jesus foreshadows His purpose and His destiny. We'll come back to that a little later. Let's look at the second question. What is the significance of the Father speaking to Jesus? It is not only that He spoke, but again, look at the content of the words. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, the Father affirms Jesus is the One. He is announcing to the world, this is my one and only Son. First century Judaism was ablaze with the hope of the coming Messiah. And at His baptism, the Father says, here He is. This is the one you have passionately waited for. Our son recently got engaged. Yay! (laughs) A new daughter. It's really great. So significant gifts have recently been a part of our conversations. And it reminds us that the value of a gift is not merely its financial worth, but who gives it and the context in which it is given. An engagement ring has financial worth, but its real value lies somewhere else, doesn't it? It lies in its emotional significance. And emotional significance comes from the connection of the giver to the gifted and the unique moment that it represents. So, Jesus receives this gift of affirmation from His Father and at this once-in-a-lifetime moment. Let's go to the third question. Why is Jesus' ancestry important? Again, it finishes out the rest of chapter 3. Why does Luke include this? Is it really that important? Of course, you might wish you had a record like this for yourself. Therefore, you could avoid paying the $99 or whatever it is for Ancestry.com and sending them a sample of your saliva. I think that, yeah, it is so weird, isn't it? I just think that's so weird, sending a sample of your saliva. Anyway, David Garland captures the common question that everyone asks when they come to a genealogy of the Bible. And he writes this, that family trees, other than our own... (laughs) 
may strike us as only a list, a boring list of unpronounceable names, but they have significance in the Scripture. Genealogies in Scripture are not simply a record of human fertility. They undergird the status of one for a particular office when lineage is important. The Jews kept meticulous family records because it was the basis of land ownership, inheritance, taxation, and claims to royalty. The historian Josephus writes in the first century that Jews kept family records as a matter of public record. So Joseph and Mary would have been fully aware of their history. They did not, Luke did not have to make this up. Two things stand out in Luke's genealogy. One is that Jesus is a descendant of David. You can see that there in verse 31. That the Messiah would come from this family, the family of Judah, was forecast hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. The Messiah will be a son of David. The second item is this. Luke traces Jesus' history all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Adam, the first man, represents all of us. Showing Jesus' tie to the first man reveals that God has been directing traffic throughout history. That He keeps His promises. And consistent with our theme of this Gospel, that the Gospel is for everyone. Regardless of class, race, gender, the Gospel is for everyone. So, fourth question. Wow, you're thinking... I'm moving pretty quick today. We're going to get out here early. Not so fast. We're going to invest a little time on this last one. And that is this. Why does the Spirit come on Jesus? Have you ever thought about this question? Doesn't Jesus have all He needs? He is the Son of God after all. He has every divine advantage. Doesn't He do miracles because He is God? Doesn't He resist temptation? Exercise authority over the natural and spiritual world? All because of His divine power? He is God. So what is the purpose of the Spirit coming on Him? These questions bring to the surface lingering, troubling questions that many followers of Jesus have the questions that I raised in the very beginning this morning. Here's how it goes. I know I am to be like Jesus. 1 John 2.6, for example. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Or 1 Peter 2.21, we are urged to follow in His steps. Or uh, Jesus' call to follow me. In the ancient world, to follow me meant to Imitate me to do as I do. But how could we really be like Jesus? It doesn't seem quite fair. He had, you could argue, a remarkable head start. If we can answer this question, why did the Spirit come on Jesus? I believe we can bridge this disconnection. And if we go back to the Scriptures, and if we are open 
to seeing how deeply Jesus relied on the Spirit, we will discover it is a real theme in Luke's writing and the Bible. God breathing the Scriptures through Luke wants us, I think, to understand this dynamic, to reflect on it, and then seek to apply it. Okay? So the first thing we have to do, let's go through a brief overview showing Jesus' dependence on the Holy Spirit. Alright? So again, I want to encourage you to either have a Bible in front of you or a device. We're going to look at a lot of Scriptures here, seven or eight of them. And we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It's page 855. And again, what we are looking here for is the interaction, the intersection of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus the Son. All right? Let's look at Luke 1, 35, page 855, verse 35. Going back all the way to the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit was the divine cause of Jesus' birth. Luke says this, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we see the Holy Spirit involved right in the very beginning. Now, right after His baptism, going forward to His baptism, right after the baptism, in Luke chapter 4, Verse 1 and 2, page 859. Jesus experienced testing and temptation in the wilderness. Luke 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days He was tempted by the devil. Again, see the interaction, the interplay between Jesus and His dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 14 and 15 in the same chapter of Luke. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in power, the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Skip down a few more verses. Verses 18 and 19 on the next page. Here Jesus is in His hometown in Nazareth. And He's giving here what we have as the first message He gives. His introduction to His hometown. And look at what He says. The Spirit, in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on Me because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is quoting here Isaiah 61 and also an allusion from chapter 58. This was written some 700 years earlier. In those days prior to uh, Israel's exile to Babylon, Isaiah the prophet was given a vision. He records this in chapter 61. In this vision, he sees a prophetic figure in Israel's future. This prophetic figure would come and declare God's salvation. Jesus says in verse 21 in a remarkable statement, I am that prophetic figure. I am that person. Move ahead to Luke chapter 10. Page 868. 
The context here is that Jesus is debriefing His disciples on their most recent mission. He urges them not to get caught up with the results of that mission. He is thankful for their humble spirit. He is filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit and He bursts out in spontaneous praise. Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. He rejoiced in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now turn over to the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verse 22, page 910. Again, this is still Luke writing. And we find the context here is that Peter is preaching his first Christian sermon to a gathering of Jews at Pentecost. And in verse 22, look at what Peter writes in his summary of the life of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now here, Luke does not identify the Holy Spirit in this passage, but he does point out that the miracles done by Jesus were done through the power of God. Now, Peter says something similar in Acts 10, verses 37 and 38, page 919. Just a few pages over, Acts 10, 37 and 38. This is Peter's first message to the Gentiles. He says there that you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed, that was Jesus' baptism, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went up doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Let's go outside of Luke. Let's turn to the writer of Hebrews, page 1006. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Here the writer is writing about the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And he says this again in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And finally, last verse, Romans 8.11, page 944. Paul tells us that Jesus was resurrected by the Spirit. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. What can we conclude from this brief survey? Christ's intimate partner during His time on earth was the Holy Spirit. At every momentous event, His baptism, His miracles, 
His death, His resurrection, the Holy Spirit was present in and working through Jesus. So the picture we have at His baptism in His anointing by the Holy Spirit is of tremendous significance. We see there Jesus praying, waiting on the Holy Spirit just as the believers in Acts 2 were praying and waiting on the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In accepting, this is part of the message I believe, in accepting the vulnerability and the weakness of a human being, Jesus was dependent on God as we are. How did this dependence take place? Where did it come from? Again, let's turn to the Scriptures. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I think we have this on the screen, so you can look at it on the screen here. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7. This entire section, scholars believe, was an early creed of the church, meaning that they sung it or they recited it when they gathered for worship. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, take note here, be like Jesus. Who, through, and now the creed, this creedal portion begins, who through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. I really like what theologian Bruce Ware said about the absolute wildness here. The extravagant love that we see in Jesus by this act of emptying. Let me just read to you his words. I can't improve on it any better. Here's what Bruce Ware said about this passage. He said, Christ being fully God, possessing the very nature of God, and being fully equal to God in every respect, did not thereby insist on holding on to all the privileges and benefits of his position of equality with God the Father, and thereby refused to accept coming as a man. He did not clutch or grasp his place of equality with the Father and all that this brought to him in such a way that he would refuse the condescension and humiliation of the servant role he was being called to accept. Christ not grasping equality with God cannot be taken rightly to mean that Christ gave up being God or became in any way less than fully God when he took on a human nature. No, rather he did not grasp or clutch onto the privileged position, rights, and prerogatives that his full equality with God, his Father afforded him in order to fulfill his calling to become fully a man who would amazingly be servant of all. Now I know that's really rich and that's thick, but there's so much there about the person of Jesus who He is, the sacrifice that He made. The great 
Puritan theologian John Owen, who many consider to be the greatest English theologian, believed that Christ performed His miracles not based on His divine power, but based on the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Owen saw the two working together in that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, as God, made the direct decision to take human nature into His existence at the Incarnation. But after that, the Holy Spirit was the author of Christ's graces. Why did Jesus do this? In order to become like us. To become fully human. It meant that in some way, in His humanness, He entered into the temptations that we experience. More on that next week. Jesus endured the testing that you do and that I do in this life. We know from Hebrews chapter 5 that He felt the suffering, the weakness of human limitation. The writer said there that Jesus had to learn obedience. What does that mean? Well, He didn't learn obedience from the place of disobedience. What I believe He means there is that He learned obedience from a place of having to exercise faith just as you and I must do to live in this world. He was tested, He was dependent, and He needed to pray and cry out to God because He experienced the same desperation that we feel. He was conscious of His need of being a human being fully. Now at the same time, at the same time, Jesus was conscious and aware that He possessed a divine nature. And it is equally true that there are things that He said or did that we would never imitate. <laughs> he understood, for example, that He existed before the beginning of time. As He said on one occasion, before Abraham was born, I am. A claim not only to existence before time, but also assigning to Himself a title reserved for God. Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He claimed the authority to give eternal life. He claimed that our ultimate judgment, the ultimate judgment of every human being, will rest in His hands. He died for the sins of others. Something obviously no human being is qualified to do. Our hands are bloodied. We need the Savior. All of these claims and others indicated that Jesus was aware of His divine nature. Thus, there exist in the Gospel strong points of data that pointed to Jesus being fully God and being fully man. And this is what the early creeds affirm. Fully God, fully man. Okay, so let's bend now here in our last remaining minutes. Let's take a bend. Let's take a turn on this. We're diving into the Scriptures. I've been trying to demonstrate to you that Jesus was fully human and did what He did through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question becomes, so what? So what? What difference does that make? I suggest this. 
Again, by asking questions. Did Jesus do the miracles He did because He was God? Or as a man through the power of the Holy Spirit? How did He gain such wisdom to recall and apply Scripture? How did He have the power to resist temptation, confront evil, and do battle against Satan? How did He proclaim the Word so boldly and minister with such compassion to the hurting and heal the oppressed? Was it because He was God? Or was it because He was a man in such intimate companionship with the Holy Spirit that the power of God flowed through Him? If the answer is the latter, or I could say maybe more safely this morning, if it at least partly encompasses the latter of those two questions, the implications are staggering, right? Are you tracking with me? The implications are staggering. Because it suggests that we could also do the same things. And we could adopt the same attitudes. If we likewise, if we were likewise in love with God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus was. We can feed the hungry. We can clothe the poor. We can enfold the lonely. We can bring the sick into His presence and pray for healing. We can speak the Word of God boldly. We can lead lives of love and patience and forbearance and dynamic relationships. We can recall Scripture and resist temptation. We can confront evil through the same Holy Spirit that empowered Him. And we can do all of this from a place of deep integrity, of deep love, of deep compassion, without the encroachment of self-glorification or self-righteousness or self-justification. I prayed this morning that if you were disheartened by failure or discouragement, that you would be able this morning to be able to fly again. Author Kenneth Boa likes the concept of how eagles fly and comments that the Bible seems to like eagles. They are mentioned 33 times in the Scriptures. And eagles are true flying birds, meaning they get off the ground by flapping, but they soar, they soar by thermals. Eagles begin flight training around four months old. But even before that, at about two months, they stand up in the nest, spread their wing when they feel gusts of wind. They're training to know the thermals. Thermals are the columns of air formed as heat rises from the ground. And because heat rises, these air columns push up and up, displacing the cold air around them. By staying in the warmth of the thermal, the birds continue to soar. Eagles become experts at this. In this magnificent aerodynamic action, gravity isn't deactivated, it's still at work, but a higher principle overcomes gravity. Eagles drop down when they step off a branch, then they start flapping like crazy. And once they're in the air, though, their wings don't have to work very hard, and while soaring, they use a small fraction of the effort required to rise. They're almost at rest and can enjoy the pleasure of the flight. When we first begin following Christ or 
practicing the spiritual disciplines like prayer or like reading the Bible. We're like eagles spreading our wings. Once we start flapping, though, we lift up. Maybe after a few tries, we're back down on the ground. But through repeated practice, we finally soar. In Greek, the Holy Spirit is called pneuma, which means current of air. Think about what this means for us. We flap and we flap, but eventually we catch the current of air and we soar. He's the power behind everything we do. The Holy Spirit. Now, before I just whittle right down to the very, very application of this morning, I just want us to consider three things that I want us to think about as we consider all the Scripture. And as you discuss these things in your today at lunch or in your life group or with your spouse or with friends, I want you to just remember these three things to consider to this truth that Jesus did what He did through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do the things that Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Three things to remember. One is we do carry a fallen nature. Okay? We carry a fallen nature that is inclined towards sin. Jesus did not have that fallen nature. It means that we must learn we must learn what it means to put to death the part of us that is wrapped up in the old Adam, in our natural self, the sinful self, the self-centered part of us that does not and will not and can never yield to God. Romans 8.13 says, it is only by the power of the Spirit that we can put to death the old Adam that is in us. So certainly, church, for us to become like Jesus and to do the things Jesus did, we must learn to put to death that sinful, selfish part of our natural self, that old nature. Secondly, it appears in Scripture Jesus exercised all the gifts of the Spirit. All of them. For us, 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that the Spirit distributes spiritual gifts according to His sovereignty. And that same chapter seems to imply that we do not receive, any one of us do not receive all of the gifts so that we will maintain a mutual dependence on one another, a mutual love for each other. Therefore, when we think about Jesus doing His works in us and through us, we should think about it not just individually, but corporately as a body. You know, so much of our life in the Spirit is carried out and is strengthened and is brought about in the context of relationships. In John 15, Jesus teaches that our capacity to live a Spirit-filled life as a Christian is tethered to loving one another. It's not just your individual relationship to God, but your ability to bear fruit, your ability to live a Spirit-centered life is placed right in the context of loving each other. And so we must think of it corporately. It's not just about me, it's about us. And then three... 
We can imitate God. We can be like God. We are called to be like Him. Be holy as I am holy. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 1. Over and over again, we're called to be like God, to imitate Christ, but we will never be God. We will never be Him. I will never have that ultimate authority. I will always be in the place of the created, not the Creator. That is the error. To teach that we can become gods is the error of the New Age phenomena. Some Eastern religions and even some pseudo-Christian groups here in the West. So, what am I asking you at the end of the day this morning? What am I asking you to think about? What am I asking you to do as you meditate and think and reflect on what I've shared this morning that Jesus accomplished what He did? Not only through the power of the divine nature, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have access to. Look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. In the end, what am I asking you to do? Here's what Romans 8 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. The Holy Spirit gave Paul, in a few short sentences, the plan of God, the will of God, the heart of God for your life. To make you like His Son, and to bring you into a new family, centered around Jesus. And His ultimate goal is to have you share His glory, giving you the position of kings and queens as sons and daughters of the King. And notice the role that Jesus will accept. Or accepts. He will be your brother for eternity. This is one of the reasons why many Scholars believe it's quite clear that Jesus will retain a human form throughout eternity. <laughs> Jesus wants to enter into a close and connected relationship with you as a brother who, who understands and identifies even with your brokenness and your sin. Remember how earlier I said His baptism pointed to His future destiny. What did I mean by that? When Jesus was baptized, He went under the water. Going under the water represented His death. When He came up out of the waters, it symbolized His resurrection. We do the same thing when we listen to the call to Jesus to follow Him. We die to our old, sinful, selfish selves and we begin a new life with Him. This is what Christian baptism captures. So what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to immerse yourself in the life of Jesus, to fall in love with Him, to study His life with the intent of becoming like Him, to do what He did the power of the Holy Spirit as your intimate companion. 
the lingering questions that I asked earlier this morning, those troubling questions, I think muddy our vision of what God wants to do in our life. I hope this morning, after considering these Scriptures, it will sharpen your vision of the kind of person you can become and the kind of impact you can have on the world. All the time focused on the destiny that awaits you. You see, really all of us have a choice on how we're going to live our lives. We can live our lives and we can pursue the toys and the trivialities of this world, the things that don't last, and you will receive your reward in this life. This life will be your reward. Or you can live for eternity. You can live for the things that matter for eternity. You can yield to God and let the Holy Spirit be the center and Christ be the center of your life and allow the Holy Spirit to do things in your life that you never could have dreamed or imagined, to become the kind of person and to adopt the kinds of attitudes, to have the kind of love, to be able to give freely without expecting anything in return. To establish the kind of intimate relationships you dream of. You can become that. You can do that as Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's a matter of what will you live for? What will you really give your life to? I'll finish with this quote by C.S. Lewis and then we're going to celebrate communion. C.S. Lewis said this, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that if we can, if we let God have His way, we come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be called sons of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life He has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Let's pray.